A year after the Michael Brown shooting, St. Louis's political leadership is reflecting on what happened and looking to the future. One of these people is St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough, a man who is at the center of the Brown saga. He joins us next on a special edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Uh, fellow reporter, Joe Manis. And our very special guest today... Uh, Bob McCullough. Don't worry, I call every guest very special. (laughs) I'm I'm not just uh, sucking up to you before we ask you super hard questions. Thank you so much for coming here. This is the St. Louis County Prosecutor since 1991, correct? January 1, yes. And um, we're going to be talking a little bit retrospectively about the Michael Brown saga, but also looking forward about policies that are emanating from it. But, um, you know, we're not going to change the format just because you're very special. We want to know a little bit about you, how you got into politics, you know, where you were born, where you went to high school. School, Which is my favorite question. (laughs) All that sort of stuff. Sure. Okay, so first, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and, yes, where you went to high school and how you got into politics. Well, I was was born and dragged up in St. Louis. I'm, um, I don't think I've ever left St. Louis. (laughs) I uh, I guess first lived on Wabada and then uh, right off a of Goodfellow and then uh, some years later moved to, I always say Pine Lawn, but we actually lived in the city. The city had that, uh, I usually say goofy, but I won't say that this time, residency rule for police officers at the time. And so uh, so we lived in the city about two doors from the county. Yeah, because your time. father was a police correct. officer. So you lived in North St. Louis City, is that right. correct? Oh yeah, I grew up yeah, right at Goodfellow and Highway 70, although when we moved there it was Goodfellow and... There was no Highway 70, so, um, and then I went to uh, I went to school, St. Paul the Apostle in Pine Lawn. I went to Augustinian Academy in South St. Louis, and then to uh, St. Louis University undergraduate and law school. Yeah. And uh, so, when did you graduate from law school? I graduated in law school in 1977. And so, and then, then what'd you do then? I, I went to work. I went to work. I, I mean, I wanted to. You know, I applied it couple different prosecutors offices, the city and the county, but uh, I was fortunate enough to be offered a, a job as a clerk for Judge Stewart, Joe Stewart on the Court of Appeals. Really? Yeah, and that was that was something nobody would pass up. So uh, so I did that and uh, and that was a great experience. It was a one year clerkship and, and then and the judge knew uh, going in that uh, I was looking to be a prosecutor. So um, probably in the springtime of 78 said, fine, you know, you, you know, if you want to start looking, go right ahead. And, and, uh, things worked out that I got hired by St. Louis County. Um, not the city, but you know, I interviewed with the city and the county, the county hired me in, in, uh, the spring of 1978. And so I started there and I was an assistant prosecutor in, in the county until 1985. I remember uh, Courtney Goodman was the prosecutor at the time, and then uh, Buzz Westfall was elected in 78, took office in 79. Uh, And Buzz and I became, yeah, it was like with everybody else in the office, very good friends. Seems like everybody was friends with Buzz Westfall. You know, he was a very friendly guy. He was great. Uh, He he was, and knew what he was doing, too. uh, You know, we didn't realize how much of a mess that office was until Buzz came in, and you could kind of see that, well, this is how it can actually work. Yeah. So... 
Um, and I worked there for, you know, as long as I could, you know, we got, uh, my wife and I married in 78 and, uh, had four children eventually. And, uh, but yeah, as the kids were coming, the expenses were going up and you just couldn't afford to be an assistant prosecutor. You know, even though I was, I'd been there seven, you know, a little over seven years, um, trying some major cases, a lot of, you know, big cases, a lot of murder cases and the like. Um, but you just couldn't afford to do it, and it killed me. But uh, but we had to make the make the choice to uh, to to leave. Uh, so I left in 1985, and then and went to work for for a terrific firm, Lars Blunkert and Bruning. I give them a give them a, a plug. Okay. Do they um, still exist? Oh yes. Okay. They, well, then they're going to get like either tons of business, or they're going to go out of business when you say that. Yeah, well, actually, it started off something different. Speaking of going out of business, yeah. and, and did blow up. Okay. But uh, coming out of that firm with Larry Splunkett and Bruning, and that okay. uh, they're great people, uh, and, and a terrific firm. So, so I worked for them, and they uh, um, it worked there '85 until I got elected and, and took office, and and so I took office in. Uh, on January 1, 1991. So the election, you know, a primary election in August of 90 and then the general election in November of 90. Now that was an interesting election just from the standpoint that you and the Republican Rick Grunder both had experiences from, yep. I mean, you were the son of a policeman. He had had yeah. uh, a violent encounter when he was a young right. man. Well, that was the 94 election. Okay. In, in, 90, um, in 90, it was very uh, interesting because it was an open seat. Buzz had decided... Um, to run for county, to exec. run for county executive, and and I had no intention of ever being involved in politics, um, but I saw that was an opportunity to come back into the prosecutor's office, and so uh, I, and along with an awful lot of other people, saw that same opportunity. So at one point, there were probably eight or ten people making the rounds, running for the office. Ultimately, we ended up with uh, two Democrats in the primary, two Republicans in the primary. And all four of us had, had or uh, all four of us had, had had been employed by the prosecutor's office. Three of us at the same time. Uh, Rick Berry and I ran against each other in the primary. Correct. We had been assistants together, and then in the general election, Tom, me and that's right, that's uh, right. yeah, and I ran against each other. And we had been not just uh, not just assistants together, but roommates in the office. You know, office mates. Yeah. So yeah, so, it was a pretty interesting race. Yeah. Long. Long, but I think that was one of your tougher tougher races, if yes. I'm not particular. Yeah, there there was no doubt about it. That 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 went on for really a long time. I mean, I I started really campaigning and slowly, but worked into it. But that was in that would have been January of let's see, late December, really of 1988, um, and then it went until August of or November, really of 1990. So it was a long, long time. Yeah. Everyone will lose an awful lot of weight getting the campaign. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I think, six or seven years old when you were first elected. So really all you my— You still voted for me, though, right? <laughs> from, from suburban Chicago. Uh, but from yeah. reading about you and just from talking with Joe, it seems like there were two things that happened before you were elected, I think, that probably greatly impacted you. One was the, your father being shot in the line sure. of duty. And the other, I think, was a childhood cancer diagnosis sure. that took your leg. So right. how did those two things affect you going forward, not only in your life, but in your public career? Well, not surprisingly, like uh, like a lot of kids growing up, you, you know, you you look to your father, uh, you know, in the example they set. My father was a police officer. And so it just I just kind of assumed everybody's father is a police officer. And so we were always around police and we saw what went on and and read stories that were in the newspaper. And, you know, it was just sort of that, you know, 
a lot of lawyers have lawyers for kids. A lot of doctors have doctors for kids and teamsters have teamsters for kids and fit and on down the line. So uh, it just seemed a natural. I mean, I just sort of thought, you know, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a policeman too. Um, then yes, when I was uh, in high school, the, uh, uh, I had, had bone cancer and lost a leg, which obviously meant I was not going to be a police officer. Did so, you want to be a police officer before oh, that sure. happened? Because I remember sure. reading U.S. Representative Ike Skelton's book about how he wanted to go into the military before yeah. he got polio. Yeah. And obviously he couldn't do that anymore. Was sure. that your, your career goal sure. before? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, you talked to everybody at that time. I graduated high school in 69. So just about everybody I knew talked at one point or other about the military. You know, um, because that was a pretty hot time for for the military and going in or not going in. And so there's always talk about, well, go in. Then when you get out of the military, you know, join the police department because you couldn't do it till you were 21 anyway. And so that obviously changed when I was uh, 17, which is when and and actually before that, because I had some issues uh, with my knee before that, which were pretty much going to knock all that out. And so then, yeah, it was a career change. I thought, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer. I'll be a lawyer. And, And then I thought, well. I'll be a lawyer. I'll be a prosecutor. Right. Although there, there are some people who don't like lawyers or prosecutors, but they're losers. I have two of them. Both of my kids are. Joe is not one of them. But I think I think I think you don't don't like lawyers until you need one. I I think that to get a little bit into Ferguson, but also to stay in your background, I think Mm -hmm. that why there were some people that wanted you to recuse yourself from the Michael Brown situation was the your the fact that your father was shot by a police officer, and I think that that was probably an argument like in the 2000s with the Jack in the Box case as well. Like how did you kind of respond to the line of argumentation that you should have been out of that because of the personal experience that you had? You know, we're all shaped by our life experiences. And that certainly was one to me. But when I looked at it and and the way I, I described it before is, you know, it wasn't in July of 1964, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't a police officer who was killed in the line of duty. It was my father who was killed. Whether he was a police officer or not was not the true trauma. Uh, the true trauma was that he was my father and he wasn't coming home anymore. So, uh, you know, and, and I'm so in that regard, it's no different than anybody else. The circumstances and dying a violent death as he did, whether right. whatever the circumstances happened to be. So, the criticism criticism that has been leveled over the years made a, a pretty big jump from your father was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty, therefore you can't be fair when it comes to a police officer. And there's just no logic in between the two. There's never anybody said, Well, here, take a look at this and here's why. This is why you're not fair. Look at the you know, the look at this, 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 and this and shows you're not fair. It 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 it, it was all stemming from your father's death. Yeah, it was just one thing jumped 50 years forward to the next thing. Yeah. And, and it was just, you know, there was just, and it's hard to counter that to say, well, no, it doesn't. Well, yeah, it does, you know, because you couldn't do that. And, and it was a black man who killed your father, and therefore you can't be fair to black men. Well, that's just, it's not logical. Yeah, but, um, but I think this experience has kind of prompted a public policy discussion about whether prosecutors mm-hmm. should step aside when there's police involved, sure. sh- shootings or killings. I want to play a clip from Representative Joshua Peters, who's a Democrat from St. Louis, basically making the argumentation that it mm-hmm. should happen. I would like to see um, an independent attorney appointed by the prosecutors um, in police shootings. I think that's something that's manageable. It's something that's, that's reasonable. And I think that's going to be a big issue with whoever runs for circuit attorney to replace Jennifer Joyce, where they stand on that issue. 
Obviously, the circuit attorneys in St. Louis City, that race is going to be open. But it's not only Democrats who have been calling for that. I think State Representative Jay Barnes of Jefferson City has Mm -hmm. said that's a good idea as well. What's your thoughts on that proposal? Well, the thought is that that, and we're always everybody's always willing, or at least we are, look at various options and and, um, um, proposals put forward. But when you look at appointing a special prosecutor, again, it's it's the mere fact that that you're saying it's it's not too dissimilar from saying your father was killed as a police officer, therefore you can't be fair. You're a prosecutor, therefore you can't be fair. And so there's just no logic behind that. When you look at the proposals that are out there, and every one that I've seen, we've I've looked at all of them. One is that. Um, you know, you appoint the prosecutor in an adjoining county. And, and, and let me back up a little bit. The, the reason put forth by everybody is you work too closely with the police in order to be fair when it comes to the police. And again, there's nothing to back that up. And everything, everything that is out there doesn't back that up. You know, in my office alone, over the past 24 years that I've been there, you know, we've prosecuted probably 50 police officers or more. And for everything from, you know, from, well, murder, but that was not police related. It was, you know, it was on, but it's a long story. It had nothing to do with this police work. It was a family, uh, family dispute. But a lot of things on duty from child molestation to uh, sexual assault, to burglary and stealing and, and, and you name it. So, and, and, and even assaults in, uh, you know, of suspects that were coming up. Now, never a, a, an officer involved uh, death. Uh, of, of, a, of a suspect, um, but that's actually a good thing because you know we looked at every one. We looked at those for the past twenty years, and and there just hasn't been one. It's not to say everything was done properly, but that it was a an appropriate use of force and necessary use of force. So, so some of the proposals are then when you have that too close of a relationship to um, to be fair, and so one proposal was well let's uh, let's appoint. The prosecutor in an adjoining county. Well, if you look at the city of St. Louis, I'm the only prosecutor who adjoins the city of St. Louis. So when that was pointed out, it was like, well, okay, that's not what we want because yeah, we don't want you handling all those. Yeah. So, so in other words, they they don't want. It's not just not handling St. Louis cases. That sure. part of the effort is so that you wouldn't handle any case. Correct. Well, so you wouldn't handle any police shooting. Right, so right. then, who's going to handle those? Then it was pointed out, well, well, we'll make the attorney general automatically the special prosecutor. Well, first of all, the attorney general's not on the ground right then and there. So what are they going to do? And what do you do until the attorney general in that situation could get there and start the investigation, the prosecution? So who's going to do that? Well, the same people who are doing it now, the police are going to do it, or you just sit there and wait until they show up, which is not a, a particularly effective way to uh, conduct an investigation. The other is when you look at the attorney general currently, um, the attorney general's office has a a prosecution office that's about half the size of mine. They've got about 25 prosecutors in there who crisscross the state of Missouri prosecuting cases, which means necessarily they work very closely with law enforcement throughout the state of Missouri, in particular the highway patrol. Mm -hmm. So if that criticism is there that you're working too closely with the police, it applies to the uh, to the attorney general's office also. In addition to that, the current attorney general was the elected prosecutor um, for ten County, years yeah. in Cass County. Yeah. And the other thing I pointed out is what happens if I get elected attorney general next year? Then I'm in charge of everything in the state. I take so it that you're, you're swearing that off right here and now. I right? never swear on or off anything. <laughs> I, 
I wanted to make national so, news here. <laughs> but so, it, but so it's all those things. And then, and then it's like, well, so who are you going to appoint? And who's going to be, uh, who's responsible for that? What resources are there? You know, the investigations cost money. So are there new investigators coming in? And are they going to be law enforcement? Well, if they're law enforcement, they have that same bias. So the whole idea is just is just rife with flaws in it, and no one's ever uh, addressed that. And the bottom line is this. We elect prosecutors in the state of Missouri, and we elect them to do the job, and that includes investigating and prosecuting every case that should be prosecuted within that jurisdiction. And if you don't trust the prosecutor to do that, then don't elect them mm-hmm. or throw them out at the next election when it comes. If you can't trust the prosecutor, your elected officials, throw them out. Now, veering to the uh, Michael Brown case, you, mm-hmm. know, you, you and I talked about this a few days ago when you'd participated in the questionnaire that we did of a number of elected officials. Mm-hmm. Um, what made this case different from some of the other cases that you've handled? And why do you think it got so became so emotional, became an international issue? I think the uh, what made it different was the the extent of the media coverage, beginning with social media, and that just didn't exist in prior cases and prior situations. The same argument, if you want to go back to the uh, to, to the two thousand uh, shooting uh, and the Jack in the Box, um, the 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 same arguments, the same issues were raised in that, but and and even a lot of the same. Uh, participants were involved, you know, in, in the demonstrations. And so, but you didn't have the social media and, and then the, you know, the 24 hour news cycle didn't pick up on it and, and run with that. And so that was the biggest part. And so social how, media, how did social media, well, social media, if you recall within, I'm going to say half an hour, and that's probably pretty generous. There were a half dozen or more reports on social media as to what had happened. Um, and most of them were that uh, Mr. Brown was on his knees with his hands up asking not to be shot, and the officer walked up and shot him. And at that point, nobody in law enforcement or anywhere else knew how many, even how many times Mr. Brown had been shot, much less where he had been shot or the circumstances surrounding it. And so that went out, and that became gospel because, you know, if you hear it three times, it becomes the truth, no matter what, uh, no matter what it is. And so it was, it was not possible to counter that for a number of hours, uh, at least until somebody could see how many times and, 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 and start an investigation and do that. And because of the circumstances on the scene at that time, that investigation couldn't get started in, in, in earnest uh, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. By then, it was you know, around the uh, the social media world with that. Now, it took several days for, um, you know, the news cycles and the like, the, the, the cable news uh, cable news people to pick up on it and, and run with it. But then they just started broadcasting the same sort of thing, saying, here it is. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons you became the se- one of the central figures in this mm-hmm. entire situation is you decided to convene a grand jury instead of deciding for yourself whether Darren Wilson should have been prosecuted for anything. Comparably... Sure. The Baltimore city attorney didn't mm-hmm. have a grand jury. She decided on her own to indict the police officers. Mm-hmm. And it, it prolonged the story, in my opinion, much longer because of that grand jury process. Do you think that that had an effect on why, you know, it got more coverage because the grand jury process was longer than that? You know, I, I don't think so because because of this. There, there are two ways primarily for cases to, to get filed. 
assuming there's sufficient evidence in order to file a charge. We'll, we'll assume that for the second. Um, there are two ways to do it. One is to wait until the investigation is completed by law enforcement. You can't make a decision until you have the information. And that was going to take three or four months or longer in order to gather that information. Mm -hmm. uh, because there were so many people that had to be entered. There were so interviewed. There were so many statements out there by all these people, different people, um, on opposite ends of the spectrum where, where the statements were. And then there's all the physical evidence on top of that, in addition to three separate um, uh, post-mortem examinations and a parallel federal investigation that was ongoing. And by the way, uh, the local FBI and U.S. attorney were, were great in, in all that because whatever information they got, they immediately provided to us. Whatever information we, we were uh, obtained, we immediately provided to them. So even though they're parallel investigations, we all had the same information. But that took months. So the options were wait until that investigation is completed by law enforcement and then sit down with them and go through all the evidence and see what needs to be done, if anything, and then present the matter to a grand jury or make the determination as to whether we go ahead and file charges and then present it to a grand jury. Or what I ultimately decided to do was start immediately with the investigation. You know, the grand jury has the authority uh, to investigate, not just indict, but to investigate. Mm -hmm. And so that was what we were doing with that. So in effect, there were three investigations ongoing, the grand jury, the uh, county police, and the, and the federal investigation. Yeah. And, so, but one of the criticisms of the grand jury process, and maybe you can just address it here, and I'm sure you've addressed it before, is that true. you, the critics say that you provided so much information and put so many people in front of the grand jury that mm -hmm. it just overwhelmed them with so much information that they couldn't render a proper decision. Right. What, what, what do you say to criticism I, like that? I say it's just, it's, there's just no, it's, it's dumbfounding to me how I could, uh, how I could be criticized for providing all the information available to the finder of fact. Um, if you look at how a trial is operated, a trial where a jury is going to decide if the individual is guilty or not guilty, that is exactly how the information comes in. All the information that is available goes to that jury, and then that jury goes into the back room and deliberates and decides, is he guilty or not guilty of this offense? That's how every trial works. And so all of the evidence that we put in, in front of the grand jury is evidence that, that would have been admissible at a trial, and that's an obligation I have, and that includes uh, evidence that may... Um, mitigate the level of the offense or uh, may just show that no crime was committed. You know, I've got that obligation because the grand jury is a one-sided affair. Uh, there is no defense attorney in there. There's no judge in there. And so I have an obligation set out by the rules of uh, how prosecutors conduct business, um, reinforced by the National District Attorneys Association's procedures, the ABA's procedures, saying I have an obligation to present even exculpatory evidence to the grand jury. So we put that, all of that evidence in. And, and I've said before, if I overwhelmed and confused this grand jury, then I also overwhelmed and confused the entire United States Department of Justice because they had exactly what that grand and jury they had. didn't indict Officer Wilson either. Correct. So. And not only didn't indict him, but, but stated unequivocally that his use of force, they're not saying that everything was done right procedurally in terms of, you know, how maybe it could have been avoided, maybe it couldn't, all that, but said when it came down to the use of force uh, in self-defense that 
that it was a, a an appropriate or a proper use of force. Yeah. So, is, is there anything looking back that you would have done differently? That I mean, either yeah, substantive or not. Yeah. You know, I, we look at it all the time. We have been for the last year, and we will be for years to come. And kind of the conclusion I've come to is that there there are ways that it could have been done differently. Uh, and, and you know, th than what we did in, in some regards. Um, but I don't know that that it just doesn't make them better or worse. But it they could have been done. Differently. Like, would you have still announced the decision at night? Like that was sure. a heavily criticized decision. You know, it, it was, and, and and that's a good example. Let me do that. In looking at that, um, we could have tried to hold off and and said on on Monday night. You know, we're going to announce this tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. All right, and then that way people had overnight and everything else. But the more we looked at it. And that was one way of doing it. But the more we looked at it, we thought everything was in place. It, the The word was out that, yes, the grand jury has reached a decision. And I thought, ultimately, that it was the best uh, way to do it. There's no good time to do it, but the best time to do it was as quickly as possible so that the word is out there. We can release the information and people can start looking at that. By doing it at, at uh, 8 o'clock, and 8 o'clock was the time that we needed to get everything ready through the media. Uh, the, the local media stations were great with all that. But trying to get that much time ready, the police were already in place. They were already on high alert and on their 12-hour shifts and in, in position where the National Guard was. They were around. Um, and then, um, but the schools were closed. The schools had already announced. Was that one of the reasons you did it at night? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, we wanted to do it after, of course, the schools were closed and the students had enough time to, to get home. Mm -hmm. uh, that businesses had an opportunity to close and make their determination they're going to be open or closed tomorrow. That rush hour traffic, to the extent we have rush hour traffic around here, I haven't been in Chicago recently, um, that that was over and done with. That people weren't going to get caught in a situation where something kicks up on the street. Because did you expect to that to be the response of the decision, like rioting and looting and burn, burn down buildings? Yes. We, we expected, and I expected, that there would be a violent reaction to it. Um, what, what I didn't know and couldn't anticipate was the extent of it. Uh, I didn't know if there'd be a lot, there'd be a little. Um, I didn't think, and I don't think anyone did, thought it would be widespread. And widespread, I mean, beyond... Um, pretty much the area where it was, out west Florissant, and then in front on New Florissant, in front of the uh, <clears throat> in front of the uh, uh, police station, City Hall, yeah. uh, as opposed all over the uh, metropolitan area. So we didn't think that was going to occur. Now, was there anything that had, had you expected to see more National Guard troops or anything like that on the ground after this? Or yeah, let me back up a little bit. You have to keep in mind that that. We, we being the prosecutor's office and the uh, and the uh, the investigators on the case, not just my investigators, but the FBI, the county police officers who were involved in the, directly in the investigation, were all working our end of it, and not working the, you know, the security and, and right. The that was the governor's control. role because he controls well, the, the national guard. Guard certainly was the governor's control, and he had declared, I believe, a state of emergency, which put him in charge of everything. So, um, so. We just kind of assumed those were being handled the way they, they should be. And I know I saw the governor say that the National Guard will be here and they will not tolerate uh, burning, looting, stealing. Those aren't his exact words, but 
Well, that's Very a question close. I guess we have for the governor if he ever comes on the show. Yeah, so so now since then, of course, that, that particular case is over. Now, you have mentioned, though, there is at least one legal case that's still pending that's related Correct. to the Michael Brown shooting. Correct. You want to mention that? That case is the, the one filed by the uh, uh, juror Doe, uh, the anonymous juror who wants to uh, uh, be able to uh, um, avoid the oath that was taken and, and be able to talk about certain things. Now, looking ahead... Uh, and you and I talked about this before. Uh, what do you hope comes out of this, and what do you think could come out of this? What I hope comes out, of, and let me—I don't think I've said it yet, but I've said it many times before. This is still a, a horrible, tragic death, regardless of the circumstances. You know, Michael Brown was a young man who who lost his life, and you know that's always a terrible thing, regardless of the circumstances. And it had, of course, devastating effect on the uh, the officer that was involved, and. And, you know, no young man should ever be shot and killed by the police, and no police officer should ever be put in that position. But um, we know that's going to happen. And so one good thing about it is training has been reemphasized uh, with law enforcement, on, on, and they've always done a, a pretty good job with that in, in how to deal with people for, for years. You know, since the mental health system in the country was dismantled in the 80s, you know, the police have become the, the uh, street corner psychiatrists who, who have to deal with the mentally ill. And so a lot of training has gone into that. And so now it's, it's spread to uh, just to a general sort of de-escalating a situation. Um, and the other, uh, as I think the community understands now, too, that they have to be much more involved. You know, they can't sit back and complain about crime in the neighborhood and then ignore it. Uh, and then not uh, not get involved, not uh, not uh, assist the law enforcement in addressing that crime. You know, they they know better than anybody who the uh, bad guys in the neighborhood are, and yeah, you know, they've got to they've got to get involved. And there are ways to do it, with, you know, of course, protecting people and protecting their uh, uh, and and maintaining their safety. The other, I think, is finally uh, there's that political will developing to address the municipal situation. We have municipalities that are just, they're not capable of providing, um, my biggest concern is they're not capable of providing effective law enforcement to their citizens. And by that I mean um, they don't have the resources to put an appropriate number of well-trained, experienced police officers on the street. Some of the areas that, that uh, you know, have the least amount of resources have the highest crime rate and need good law enforcement more than anybody else. But regardless of where you live in St. Louis County, uh, everybody's entitled to have good, effective, responsible, well-trained, well-funded law enforcement. And there are far too many communities that can't do that. And they've got to sit down and, and come to the realization that they can't do it, and so they need to do something about it. What, I mean, do you envision more small small communities um, basically contracting out to St. Louis County um, because of the now within yeah. six years, they're going to have to have certified police department. Correct. Or do you expect that this could lead to many of the smaller communities either dissolving or merging? Uh, you know, I, I, I think we'll see some, I hope we will see some of, of, of both um, that, you know, there, there's, but you have to be very careful. You know, there's, there's a move now for a number of, smaller communities to band together and provide police service for the whole area. On paper, that's a good idea, but again, it's the resources. So if you have 10 municipalities, each with a police department, and five of them are underfunded and can't do it, 
you can't put them with five people who have adequate funding and expect that now you're going to be able to do adequate funding for everybody. It's just not going to work. The economics don't work. Yeah. And, uh, and so we're seeing some of that. You know, and that's that's going to be a problem. We have to make sure that we can we can avoid doing that. So I do expect uh, and hope that, that that a lot of municipalities going straight out Natural Bridge to start with will look at the county and and um, consider and and contract not just consider it but but contract with St. Louis County to provide that service. You get a greater police, a great police department, a, a nationally and internationally accredited department, and a full service department. So that when you have a major crime in that uh, in that municipality, you don't have to then call county in. You know, you can contract with a neighboring uh, department um, or one that's you know three minis away. But if if you have a murder, a sexual assault, you need some uh, specific uh, evidence gathered and the like, they're still going to call county police in. And so by contracting with county, uh, you know, there's there's the economy of scale. Now, and you get a great police department. Now, now since this is politically right. speaking, I do want to ask about the political kind of ramifications surrounding the Michael Brown shooting. It, what what some national media people may not have grasped is August 9th came after a very contentious primary between Steve Stanger and Charlie Dooley. Sure. You, got involved, you got involved. You cut ads for Steve Stanger. I would right. say that some people, even Charlie Dooley, even said that that decision may have been a key factor in the election. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you, if the, you know, reaction to the Michael Brown shooting, um, especially the negative portrayals of you by some of the people that may have been upset by the decision yeah. had any role in, you know, how you were kind of talked about by, by some people and how you were criticized. You know, I think with some that it did, yes. Um, and those were, were you know, some, uh, some, uh, Political people and, and not political people or non-office holders who supported Charlie, um, who were not happy that that not only I but a number of other people and organizations switched from from uh, supporting Charlie to supporting Steve Stenger for county executive, and they were upset about that. And I think uh, in some cases it was an opportunity for someone to be very vocal about it, not come right out and say it's because McCullough you know supported Stenger instead of Dooley. But just kind of uh, went off on me on a variety yeah. of and occasions. And here, here's actually a clip of Charlie Dooley uh, t- saying some not so nice things about you, which may be an example. That's why that's why Bob McCullough did what he did. He understands this community, and you know what I'm talking about. I have to say it. I say that it's a race card. He pulled a race card. Charlie Dooley. Here I am, the uh, the highest elected official in the county, and you're gonna call me corrupt. I, a sitting attorney would say that. A prosecuting attorney would say that. Knowing it's not true. And to say he outright lied. Well, I talked with some African American officials after mm-hmm. that. Um, what, what I would say comments, and what they pointed to is the fact that when you call an African American official corrupt, or in your case, corruption was rampant, or something. I don't think you called Charlie Dooley corrupt no, directly. No. no, I didn't. But it has an extra stinging effect compared to if you do that to a white politician. I'd, I'd like you to respond to that and to and to that entire argumentation. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, calling a, you know, activity or actions corrupt um, should have the same effect and impact on anybody, um, whether you're, you're African-American or, or a white guy. I don't know why it would be held in, in any greater um, regard, I guess, for, for depending upon the race of the individual involved. What I was talking about in those ads, and I was very careful about that, is that, you know, corruption is 
is not just criminal conduct, but it's unethical conduct. And, and if you look back at the ads that were on there and what we were talking about, the, those were things that, that involved conflicts of interest and really just bad decisions that were being made, not, not by Charlie, uh, but by others in his administration. And, and you know, but, but, you know, if you're at the top, then you bear the brunt of it. And it's not like nobody ever talked to Charlie and said, these guys are killing you. You know, Temporiti and Mike Jones and, and Gary Earls were, were killing him. Yeah, and it's possible he would have lost regardless of those ads because of the park situation. Sure. But I did I did hear that from some people that mm-hmm. there's an extra layer of sensitivity on that. But I think it jumps to a broader question mm-hmm. because uh, post-Ferguson, I, I think, as you kind of mentioned, there's a greater examination of municipalities and law enforcement, as you right. mentioned. But I'm just wondering, as the countywide prosecutor, how do you feel your relationship is with the African-American community? And if you and what what do you plan to do going forward mm-hmm. to forge trust with them? I will be the, I, I have said this before. I have in, intentionally sat back for, for a number of reasons. One, I, I never said anything to, to anybody about Ferguson until well after um, pretty much even after, well, after the grand jury announcement, certainly, and then even some time passed there, j- just to kind of let emotions and feelings calm down. Um, because I, my concern was if, if I came out and said something, I didn't want anybody to have a reason to go out and do something stupid. And so, you know, so there was some backlash when I did talk about some things, but I think it could have been worse as it went on. Then there were a number of lawsuits that were involved and and I was just not in a position to be able to go out and, and uh, talk about a lot of things until then. But, uh, you know, I I think, you know, we have to, to reach out to the entire community, including obviously the African-American community and, and sit back. You know, we could have always, and I could have always done a better job of educating the public on exactly what we do. And that, that is one thing that I learned. And I talk about the grand jury. I know exactly what I'm talking about, but most people have no idea where a grand jury comes from or what their responsibility is or what they're there to do. It's interesting, just not to interrupt, but I was reading some archives of when you first ran for office. And, I, mm-hmm. and one of your goals was actually increasing minority um, attorneys in the sure. prosecuting office. Right. So that was like one of your goals early on. So right. it must have been jarring for you to be you know, nationally caricatured as racially insensitive during this entire thing, when at the very beginning of your career, it was a goal to right. diversify the office. Was that was that something that crossed your mind at all? It, you know, it, it was. I was asked several times, well, how many African-American lawyers do you have? And, you know, at, at the time it was five or six attorneys in there. I'd say, well, that's, you know, that's not even 10%, so shame on you. I said, well, wait a minute. First of all, in the entire nation, less than 5% of attorneys, regardless of what kind of law they practice, are African-American attorneys. And, and when you look, I mean, we, we have uh, gone out over the years, and for a long time, I know uh, when county would, we'd have an opening, county would send a notice to the uh, Mound City Bar Association looking. So, you know, so we, we've done what we can to, to increase the, uh, uh, the participation. I think it's very important, of course, because there, there are times when, you know, a young African-American kid may be much more comfortable talking to a young African-American lawyer, just as a, a, you know, a young child female may be more comfortable talking to a female lawyer. I mean, call that what you want, but it's, it makes perfect sense, and, and we need those bodies. So, so we've done that. And, and as I said, we, I've not, you know, I've been... Yeah, criticized in some some uh, 
aspects or some uh, part of the African-American community, but I think I still have a lot of support there. I mean, it's not uncommon for African-Americans and white guys, too, to stop me on the street and say, you know, hey, fine, we think you're doing a fine job, and you did this, and, you know, we, we try to uh, run all these cases the way they should be, uh, prosecute them and not prosecute cases that shouldn't be prosecuted regardless of the, uh, uh, the racial makeup of, of the individuals involved. Uh, one of the things that int- int- intrigued me, and this is something for our listeners too, is that before the Michael Brown situation, on a political level, whether one likes it or not, you were pro- pro- probably one of the most popular Democrats in the mm-hmm. St. Louis area. You've really not had a major opponent and many times no Republican opponent for most of the last 20 years. Uh, When Buzz Westfall uh, tragically died in 2003, there would have been some pressure on you to consider running to fill out the rest of his term. There was also pressure on you that same time in 2004 to consider running for Congress because Dick Gephardt was stepping down. And so there had been a lot of pressure on you over the years to go to a different office. You have never done that. Um, a, has has this experience uh, changed? I mean, I guess when looking back over your political decisions, um, do you have any regrets about that considering what's happened? And B, um, what are your future plans? <laughs> yeah, I knew there was a B coming. Yeah. <laughs> I have no regrets over the years of of not running for some other office, and and, and I looked at each and every one, as, you know, as it would come in, and and just even the most recent county executive election, there were a lot of people saying, "Why Correct. don't you run for?" And so I looked at all those and just made a, a conscious decision, a very informed decision, not to do that. Whether it was Congress, I will tell you this: that since um, you know the the uh, um, the Michael Brown situation. I've I've been approached about running for a lot of other offices too, and so you look at all those things and make a determination whether it's attorney general or governor for that matter. And and so you look at all those things, and you know you never say never, but you know you always look at them. I, I so it, are you going to make, make some news here? I, I find <laughs> it hard not. to believe you're going to run against Chris Coster, given that you like endorsed him in 2008 when a lot of other people weren't endorsing yeah. him. That's a fair assessment. Well, are you, are you going to endorse anybody in the attorney general's race, though? You know, I said we've been kind of busy getting uh, everything in order and in line, and you know, we got there, there's plenty of time to sit I, back and yeah. go. Yeah, well, so we'll sure. have to see. And, yeah, we'll have to see who's running. You know, everybody running for attorney general. Yeah, too. I mean, without it, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things, although you did run into a lot of controversy over endorsing Stanger, in sure. fact, that sort of fits a pattern of yours. I mean, you endorsed Claire McCaskill when she ran against. Bob Holden, who was a sitting governor Correct. about uh, 10 years ago. And uh, you have, as Jason mentioned, you know, you endorsed Chris Coster in that really nasty three-way Democratic uh-huh. primary in 2008 for attorney attorney general. So I'm sure there are some politicians who have either asked for your endorsement for 2016 or maybe have decided not to because of the Michael Brown situation. And when you're talking to people on a yeah. political level, has there been some discussion about that? Uh, you know, there really hasn't been, I think, and I really do think, I mean, you know, the political junkies are the ones who are thinking about the governor's race next year. And like like you, us. Yes. <laughs> right, like you. <laughs> Nobody else is thinking about it. And so I think as time goes on, then people will sit down and, and, and uh, start talking about it. You know, who's going to run, what's going to happen, who's going to do what, and where are you going to go? I've never... 
Uh, I've never been afraid of stepping up and endorsing somebody and supporting somebody. I think it would be good for the office, regardless of you know what else is going on in that. I'm not one who said no, no, you you know you can't run against a a fellow Democrat. You can't run you know for an you know. So I did that. So when Claire McCaskill ran, for, I'd I'd do whatever I could do to get Claire McCaskill to run for governor now. <laughs> so I would love to see her. She'd make a good good president. She'd make a better governor. So wow. But she, and I would say this too. With it, and let me go back to Charlie Dooley. I don't want to leave this part out. You know, yeah. I I worked hard for Charlie Dooley when he was going, and Charlie did a great job for the first five or six years. I made a commercial for him. I, you know, a lot of people all over me to run for county executive. And I even and asked him at the time. It's like you know, you're saying all these bad things about yeah. McCullough now, but right. you weren't saying that no. when he was endorsing you. So right. it begs the question, yeah. you know, why not then and opposed to now? But again, we don't want to dredge no, up too much don't. history. And I think just the, the emotion. Charlie's a, a wonderful guy and, and did a great job and unfortunately had some issues with the, the people surrounding him that, that cost him an awful lot. Yeah. And that's Now, now looking to 2018, you know, I mean, that's when you, this current term you're in expires. Have you given any thoughts to that? You knew that was coming. Yeah, I knew it was coming. But, but it's like every turn I have, I've been very fortunate that the voters have, uh, have returned me to that office every four years. And, and every halfway through those terms, I start looking at it again, decide, you know, what I mean, I've done this now, this is my 25th year. And I, I've just been, I've been very fortunate to have the, have the trust of the, uh, the electorate in St. Louis County. And, um, and I hope that certainly will continue. I think it does, but you know, we'll, we'll always wait and see. We will see. Twenty-eight years we'll, old. We'll, we'll have we'll, we'll have to have you on again in twenty eighteen. Thank you so Great. much. Hope for you have to before then. We'll we'll have to have you on before then. Thank you so Great. much for coming in today. Uh, My pleasure. You can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And I'm going to take a wild guess that you're not on Twitter, so people can. Like send a stork with messages in it to send you any messages. That's correct. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Or Facebook. Or whatever else there is out there. Um, a lot of stuff. Too much stuff. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.